Why did the early Christians accept some gospel accounts of Jesus, but reject others? And what does this mean for us today? That's what we'll be looking at this week on Exploring the Faith. I'm Kurt Parton, and this is Exploring the Faith, where we examine any question or issue that helps us be more faithful as followers of Jesus Christ. We want to be growing always closer to God to more deeply understand the life he's brought us into, to help and encourage our fellow believers, and to meaningfully engage the culture around us. Welcome to the discussion. Continuing our search for the Jesus of history. This week, we'll begin looking at the historical sources we have for the life and teachings of Jesus. This means we'll be examining the Gospels of Jesus Christ. So, what exactly do we mean by gospel? The word gospel can have different connotations in different contexts. For our discussion this week, when I refer to Gospels of Jesus, I'm speaking of accounts of Jesus' life and teachings. If you're familiar with the Christian Bible, you know the New Testament begins with four Gospels of Jesus, four different accounts of his life and teachings. The Gospels, or accounts, of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You may have also heard about other Gospels of Jesus that Christians have not historically accepted, the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Peter, and others. So, Which ones do we trust? Which ones should we reject? And why? To help us understand why followers of Christ refuse to accept some Gospels, some accounts, we need to understand why they embrace the ones they did. Once we're familiar with the standards they used in evaluating the Gospels that became part of the New Testament, we'll be able to better consider why they rejected the alternative Gospels. There's some historical background we need to understand first, and some misperceptions we need to clear up. You may have heard the claim that the Roman Emperor Constantine is the one who decided which books would be included in the Bible and which ones would not. This idea may have spiced up a fictional novel or two, but it has no basis in reality. The truth is, by the second century, church leaders were already listing the books they considered to be scripture. These lists aren't exactly the same in every minor detail, but they're strikingly similar. Christians immediately accepted most of the New Testament books as divinely inspired, and, most relevant to our discussion, this includes the four biblical Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We should probably talk a bit about the canon of Scripture. What do we mean by the canon of Scripture? An author's canon is all the works genuinely produced by that author. The canon of Dickens' writings, for instance, would be made up of everything that Charles Dickens wrote. If a manuscript was discovered that was supposedly written by Charles Dickens, and Dickens scholars were trying to determine whether it was part of his canon, they would be trying to determine whether it was genuinely written by Charles Dickens. It's important for us to understand how this works in a Christian context. The early Christians discussing the canon of Scripture 
didn't make anything part of the biblical canon. They didn't make anything part of what was genuinely inspired by God. They were seeking to recognize what was truly of God, and therefore canon, genuine scripture. The early discussions about this among Christians and later votes in church councils aren't about some majority determining what would constitute the Bible. It shows the overwhelming consensus and agreement among Christians about what books were truly biblical, truly divine. Now, we're not yet trying to determine whether these Gospels were actually divinely produced or not. We'll look at that question in a future series on the Bible. For our purposes in this series, which are primarily historical, we don't need them to be divine scripture. So we're not even considering that question right now. We're just seeking to know why the early Christians accepted these works as definitive, reliable accounts of Jesus Christ. And they did. We know historically that the four biblical gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were never in doubt by the early Christians. They were accepted as genuine accounts of Christ from the very beginning. So why were these books embraced by Christian believers? What criteria were used by these followers of Christ to evaluate the authenticity of gospel accounts of Jesus? One of the first things they wanted to know for any claimed gospel of Christ is, when was it written? The early Christians wanted to rely on the earliest, most reliable accounts of Jesus. And this makes perfect sense to us today. We would want to know the same thing. The four biblical gospels were all written in the first century. Everyone agrees that John's gospel was the last written. Most scholars believe Mark's was first, with Matthew and Luke following soon after. There's compelling evidence suggesting Mark's gospel was written as early as the 40s AD or CE, which would have been very soon after Jesus' death and the early spread of the Christian faith. Some scholars don't accept this date, but still agree that Mark was written by the 60s AD. For a gospel account of Jesus to be considered legitimate, it must have been written by someone who could have witnessed these events personally or could have interviewed eyewitnesses. The New Testament Gospels passed the test of being written early enough to be authentic. The next thing they would want to know is, who wrote it? The early Christians were very concerned with how apostolic the writings were. Remember, the apostles were the ones Jesus had personally commissioned to be his formal representatives or ambassadors. They were to speak his words with his authority, similar to an ambassador or special envoy of the United States, speaking with the authority of our government. We know this understanding of the prominent role of the apostles of Christ goes back to the earliest followers of Jesus, after his death and resurrection. So these believers wanted to accept only gospel accounts and letters written by the apostles or by people closely associated with them, and the content had to have the ring of authenticity as apostolic writing. This doesn't mean they were desiring only books written by superstars. They weren't demanding the sensational, but the authentic. We can see this by looking at the accepted authors for the four biblical gospels. Only John was well known as an apostle, although he had nothing like the notoriety of a Peter. Matthew was also an apostle, and both he and John were eyewitnesses of the events of which they wrote, but Matthew didn't seem to be especially famous in the early church. He didn't have the name recognition that someone would want if they were going to market a gospel of Christ. And Mark and Luke weren't widely known at all. 
They were both closely associated with apostles and were known by the churches where they administered, but their names were definitely not sensational attention-getters. The relative obscurity of some of these gospel authors testify to their authenticity. There would have been no reason to attribute these writings to these little-known authors unless they actually wrote these gospels. And one of the fastest ways to get your writing rejected by these Christians was to attribute it to another, usually famous, author. These kinds of writing are called pseudonymous. They aren't anonymous, they're pseudonymous, as in pseudo. They're written under a false name. This kind of literature was considered acceptable by most people in the first few centuries after Christ, but not by Christians considering whether a writing should be accepted as definitive scripture. If they became suspicious a writing was not really written by the alleged author, it would be immediately disqualified. This doesn't mean a letter or gospel written in someone else's name couldn't be produced with good intentions, possibly to honor an admired apostle or leader, or that it couldn't contain any material that might be spiritually helpful. But these early believers refused to accept pseudonymous writings as part of the New Testament scriptures. The biblical gospels were not only written early enough to be authentic, but the early Christians verified them as being genuinely written by those who were either apostles or closely associated with apostles. Another question they would have asked is, has this gospel account of Jesus been widely accepted and used by the churches? Were many churches, over a broad geographical span, actually using this writing in the regular life of the church? Were church leaders universally accepting this writing as apostolic? Were pastoral leaders invested in studying and teaching this writing? Did it have the ring of apostolic truth to them? Was there general agreement that the content of this writing was in harmony with other accepted apostolic teaching? These questions were commonly asked. While some books, such as Second Peter and Revelation, for instance, took longer to reach this kind of universal usage, which is why their inclusion in the New Testament was discussed longer than the rest, the four Gospels were widely used and accepted from extremely early in the history of the Christian faith. There was never any controversy among Christians as to whether Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John should be accepted as authentic, reliable accounts of Jesus Christ. Now, we still need to discuss whether we should accept these New Testament Gospels as historically reliable accounts of the life and teachings of Jesus. We'll search that out for ourselves next week, but we've seen the reasons why the early Christians accepted the four biblical Gospels as genuine. So why didn't they accept other writings that claimed to be Gospel accounts of Jesus? What were the problems with these alternative Gospels, such as the Gospel of Thomas, Gospel of Peter, the Gospel of Mary, or the Gospel of James? It's common to hear these referred to as alternative or even competing Gospels of Jesus. What should we make of these writings? Why did the early Christians reject these other accounts of Jesus? The simplest answer is that the New Testament Gospels met all the criteria of the early Christians, and these other self-claimed Gospels did not. Let's look again at what these criteria were. First, when was it written? Let's put this into historical perspective. 
Jesus' ministry took place either in the late 20s or early 30s of the first century. The Christian Apostle Paul wrote his letters from the 40s to the 60s in the first century. Most scholars agree that Mark's gospel was written by the 60s and that Matthew's and Luke's were written by the 70s, although many scholars date all three of those much earlier. And John's gospel was written by the 90s, all in the first century. These alternative gospels, on the other hand, were written much later. While a few have tried to argue otherwise, there is no historical or literary evidence at all placing the writing of any of these other gospels before the middle of the second century. This means there's no way they could have been written by eyewitnesses of Jesus' life and ministry, and their authors could not have even directly interviewed eyewitnesses. Their late dates completely call their authenticity into question. By the time these Gospels were written, there was already widespread agreement among Christian leaders as to which writings they considered Scripture. This is especially true concerning the Gospel accounts of Jesus. Despite the rhetoric of a few outspoken, sensationalistic critics, these writings weren't considered by the earliest Christians, even as alternative or competing Gospels, because they didn't exist yet. And that brings us to the second criterion who wrote it? This may surprise some of you, but all scholars agree that none of these later so-called Gospels were written by the people they claim to be written by. The Gospel of Thomas was not written by Thomas. The Gospel of Peter wasn't written by Peter. The Gospel of Mary wasn't written by Mary. The Gospel of James wasn't written by James, and so on. This isn't controversial. Everyone acknowledges this. As I mentioned before, these Gospels are what we call pseudonymous. They were written in the name of someone else, someone famous. In fact, someone long dead. This was done intentionally in the ancient world to attract a wider reading. While Gnostics, and we'll talk more about them in a minute, but while Gnostics and other groups followed such a practice, the early Christians viewed these falsely claimed letters with disdain. These believers saw this attribution to famous dead people as inauthentic and grounds for immediate rejection. Not only did they not know who wrote the books, or what connection they had with the apostles, but they felt the books were misleading and deceitful. Because Jesus was a literal, historical person, and because they claimed the events recorded in the Gospels actually took place, they were very serious about the trustworthy nature of the accounts of Jesus' life and words. They didn't want any spurious writings to discredit the testimony regarding Jesus Christ. And this really already answers the third item on our list of criteria. Had it been widely accepted and used by the churches? These other Gospels fare poorly on this question as well, for obvious reasons. They weren't around for the formative years of the early Christian movement. They didn't exist yet. So, of course, the churches couldn't have used them. These so-called Gospels were propagated by groups of people outside of the Christian churches much later. Not only did no one know who wrote these Gospels, but the Christians viewed much of their content as strange and not in harmony with the apostolic teaching at the heart of the Christian faith. It's not just that they weren't widely accepted by the churches, they were severely criticized and universally rejected. Thankfully, we have writings from Christian leaders of this period showing their quick 
and decisive rejection of these so-called Gospels. They were aware of the Gospels now being loudly hailed by a few speculative critics, and they were not at all impressed. To understand these later Gospels, it's helpful to know a bit about the ancient religious system known to us today as Gnosticism. This religion gets its name from the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge. These people sought secret or hidden knowledge that was supposedly only known to a select few. So they were called Gnostics, the ones with the knowledge. Through their writings, we know what some of this secret knowledge was. The Gnostics were heavily influenced by some forms of Greek philosophy. They viewed the spiritual or immaterial to be pure and the physical they thought to be innately corrupt. They believed the physical world was created by an evil god, the god of the Jews, and that salvation could only be attained through secret knowledge. These secrets were said to reveal how to escape the prison of physical, bodily existence. Some Gnostics taught that Jesus was an emanation of God who came to teach them the secret knowledge. They denied the physical existence and humanity of Jesus. It's important to know that Christianity was rooted in first-century Jewish belief. The beliefs of the Gnostics were hostile to both Jewish religious tradition and early Christian beliefs. They borrowed some of the terms Jews and Christians used, but redefined them according to their own unique purposes. One example of this is the way they borrowed Jesus and used him as part of their belief system. Similar to more recent New Age proponents, who would speak of a Christ consciousness but didn't believe in the biblical Christ, these Gnostics adapted the story of Jesus to fit their new religion. Scholars agree that the Gnostic faith developed during the second century. Gnosticism didn't exist during the first century, so there's no way for there to have been Gnostic Gospels written that early. This was a religion that developed independently of Christianity, but sought to draw new followers from the Christian churches. Because Christians put great stock in the stories about Jesus and in the teachings of the apostles, these Gnostics wrote quote-unquote Gospels of Jesus that claimed to be written by Peter, James, Mary, Thomas, and so forth. Of course, the fact they weren't written in the first century was a problem, but they also depicted a distinctly Gnostic Jesus and worldview, which were incompatible with the existing beliefs of the Christians. Because of this, these so-called Gospels were universally rejected right away. Let's use the Gospel of Thomas as an example of some of these problems. The Gospel of Thomas was rediscovered in 1945 near Nag Hammadi in Egypt. Because of this, some people refer to the Nag Hammadi Gospels. It's not even what we would ordinarily think of as a gospel. It doesn't tell the story of Jesus, but merely records things he was supposed to have said. Much of the material is clearly Gnostic in nature. The book begins this way. These are the secret words that the living Jesus spoke, and Judas, even Thomas, wrote. The book goes on to tell us of the secret or hidden teachings of Jesus. These teachings are meant only for the spiritually elite, not for the common people. Instead of being taught to have faith, the reader is urged to discover the hidden interpretations that will reveal the secret knowledge necessary for salvation. In the midst of this, we find statements that are strikingly similar to what we read in the biblical Gospels. 
Does this mean the Gospel of Thomas is actually from the first century, maybe even older than the New Testament Gospels? A few, a very few, scholars would say yes, but all other scholars, Christian and non-Christian alike, see those who hold to these claims as reaching unwarranted conclusions. The evidence is just too convincing otherwise. We have no historical evidence placing the Gospel of Thomas before the mid-2nd century. The Gospel of Thomas includes quotes of Jesus that are in common with all four of the biblical Gospels. Not only that, but it quotes from late variations of these Gospels, not the earliest readings. The Gospel of Thomas also includes quotes of works that we know weren't written until the second century. And even when it does quote the Bible, it often twists the statements of Jesus into blatantly Gnostic variations. Despite the efforts of a few who try to find some hint of a first-century fragment within the text of the Gospel of Thomas, the vast majority of scholars accept that it could not have been written before around 170 A.D. or C.E. I can't help but comment on the sensationalistic writings of novelist Dan Brown and others of his ilk. Even though these writings are fictional, many surprisingly still labor under the false assumption that these kinds of books are somehow carefully researched. Nothing could be further from the truth, as countless reviews have demonstrated. For instance, in one of his books, Dan Brown claims the New Testament Gospels were later revisions and that the Gnostic Gospels were the earlier writings. This turns all of our historical evidence completely on its head, not to mention scholarly consensus. Such a claim would be laughable if it wasn't taken seriously by so many unsuspecting readers. Brown also claims the Gnostic Gospels defended a human Jesus from the Christians who wanted to turn him into a god. We'll explore in a future episode just when the Christians started believing in Jesus' divinity, but Brown shockingly gets completely backward the nature of his own cherished alternative Gospels. It was the New Testament Gospels that portrayed a Christ who was not only divine, but also profoundly human. And it was most of the later Gnostic Gospels that denied the humanity of Jesus and insisted he was purely divine. It's either very creative or very arrogant to take what we know historically and turn it so completely upside down. We should note that the Gospel of Thomas is one of these so-called Gospels that doesn't specifically deny the humanity of Jesus, but it does strongly emphasize his divinity and even encourages the reader to recognize their own divinity. When we read Brown and similar writers, this kind of subterfuge could be humorous if not for the surprising influence it somehow garnered. To use Brown as an example one last time, he repeatedly claims that these Gnostic gospel writers were seeking to defend the rights of women and to protect some kind of feminine divine. Let me quote the end of the Gospel of Thomas, and you decide for yourself if this gospel intends to protect the feminine divine, and whether there's any reason at all to accept this as an authentic statement of Jesus. Here's the very end of the Gospel of Thomas. Simon Peter said to them, Let Mary leave us, for women are not worthy of life. Jesus said, I myself shall lead her, in order to make her male, so that she too may become a living spirit resembling you males. For every woman who will make herself male will enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, you tell me, does that sound as if it's defending the rights of women? 
Some may be asking, why are you talking about Dan Brown of all people? Sadly, even after all these years, far too many still believe that even though his stories are fictional, his historical research is legitimate. This is definitely not the case. Brown is an extreme example, but there are other highly speculative, sensationalistic sources out there that contradict what we know from history. I challenge everyone to not just assume these kinds of books or internet sites or YouTube videos are correct. Do the homework for yourself. If you'd like, I can recommend good books representing different perspectives on these issues. These later Gospels give us a lot of helpful insight into the nature of 2nd century Gnostic beliefs. But they don't tell us anything about the historical Jesus. They were written too late, by unknown authors, with an invasive agenda. The early Christians consistently rejected these Gospels, and for good reason. So this brings us back to the New Testament Gospel accounts of Jesus. Now we know why these Gospels were accepted by the early followers of Jesus. But does this necessarily mean that we should view them as historically reliable? How sure can we be about what Jesus did and said? What can we really know about the historical Jesus? We'll explore these questions next week. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy this podcast, please rate it and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. This will help others find us. You can find a transcript of this episode, along with any show notes, at exploringthefaith.com. Feel free to post a comment and join the discussion. We also welcome any questions or issues that you'd like us to explore. You can submit these at exploringthefaith.com. Exploring the Faith is sponsored by The Orchard, a Jesus-following church that meets in Rancho Cordova, California, and also in weekly interactive online studies. This is my home church where I'm blessed to serve as teaching pastor. You can find out more about The Orchard at orchardonline.org.